Thank you for listening to the following films podcast. Today, my guest is Phil Hopkins from Fandor, a streaming service that's been called the Netflix of indie film. Since January 1st of this year, Fandor has grown 39%. As a way of recognizing this milestone and celebrating it, Phil has uh, allowed me to offer a seven-day trial to all of our listeners. If you check the show notes, there's a link there where you can get Fandor for free for seven days. Then after that, I think it's $3.99 a month. Um, if you do enjoy indie film, which I think that if you're listening to the show, there's a good chance you do, then I think you would really like this service. And at the very least, go give it a shot, get a look at it, and uh, see if it's worth $3.99 a month to you. Hey there. Hey, Phil. How you doing today? Doing great. Excellent. Thank you so much for taking time out of your afternoon to do this. I really appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. Um, I, I guess the first uh, most important question is, how are you holding up? How are you doing? Uh, yeah, yeah, we're doing okay. Uh, it's um, challenging, to say the least, with the uh, COVID shutdown, but we're fortunate. You know, we're in the streaming world, and with cloud technology and all the stuff we've done uh, in advance, we've been less impacted than others. Um, we do miss going to the lab and our warehouse and pulling film out and putting through the scanner and doing all that. That's been kind of a challenge, but uh, we're, we're, we're catching up in terms of our inventory management online, which is good um, because we digitized so much stuff over the past five years. I forget, like we were in like a scanning uh, frenzy for a while. <laughs> so it's good. It's good. To, this has been a good way to organize the house. <laughs> Understood. And can you talk a little bit about the, um, that process, the tactile experience that used to be so common with film going, you know, the idea of either walking into a movie theater or then when it was at home, there was this brief little window, I guess, in the history of film, it's been brief, but something that I always grew up with was the idea of buying movies and, you know, owning something. And that's something that, you know, the film detective has done some great releases that I really actually enjoyed. And um, I'm wondering if that's something that's gonna continue for you guys. Yeah, thank you. Of course it's gonna continue. as long as there's an audience to consume it, it will. I mean, listen, you know, I, I come at it as a fan. Um, so this is really a, a, a unique situation. I mean, you know, I, I'm a cinephile obsessive film collector and it's really, you know, kind of a, a luxury to be able to have access to great equipment to make great technology make the films look better and years ago it was so much harder uh and more expensive to do this and everything has changed with technology and the studios the archives have the ability to go back to make 2k 4k scans of movies and make them look a lot nicer so the experience of seeing a film that was made 70 or 80 or 90 years ago in 2021 allows you to give it a whole entire different uh, viewing perspective. And I think the audience appreciates that. It's sort of like seeing the film for the first time when you you see a a brand new scan off of good material. And even if you don't have good material, you can still make it look a lot better. I mean, the tools are amazing. (laughs) Well, I was actually um, really impressed with, I'm not sure when the merger happened with specifically uh, Fandor and um, with, film detective but there was the release that was done for giant uh, from the unknown and that was something that i a film like that would never get treated with those kind of white gloves where this is essentially kind of a ed wood quality film that probably hasn't been seen in 1.85 since the drive-in release (laughs) yeah i mean i mean giant from the unknown actually is several grades higher than an Ed Wood film. I mean, it has the legendary, you know, makeup artist Jack Pierce yes. who contributed to it. So I don't know of any Ed Wood movie that Jack Pierce was involved with. It's um, a good point. I was thinking more of the energy of like, you could see the craft people were like from craft service and producers or anytime there's an extra, it's probably yeah. somebody that was associated with the film on some level. It's kind of the reminded me of just like everybody getting together to put on a show. And I mean, the Ed Wood thing is a compliment, not oh, as... I- I told, I told, I, listen, I love Ed Wood. I love all this stuff. And I think, you know, we, we, <laughs> we're going to be doing an Ed Wood box set this year. So, I mean, oh, wow. um, I get it because <laughs> that's our world. The, the fandom of Ed Wood, I mean, 
that sadly he never realized any of this sort of recognition when he was living. He died in impoverished and shitty, you know, circumstances. But I think that the you know kind of nerdy cinephile that used to spend like I did, you know, going to like Chiller, going to the various shows to get VHS copies of these movies that were made from collectors' prints. Yep. And we would we would spend a, a shit ton of money, you know, buying up like old Coffin Joe videos at Chiller for twenty five dollars a pop. And it's a third generation. Just oh yeah, it, they look yeah. horrible. So yeah, horrible. but just to have it, I mean, you know, of this course, is, this is just. You know, this sort of luxury of going on YouTube and just sort of going down the rabbit hole all night, um, that didn't exist. I mean, I came at it from a film collector that used to buy truncated Super 8s at the department store. And so a lot of the early Universal films that I didn't get to see, I get to see truncated versions of when I was a kid. And then, of course, when they started going back into their uh, catalogs, uh, mostly because um, cable TV um, had an appetite like American movie classics and Turner Classic Movies were celebrating these movies. A lot of the studios then went to the archive. And then by the time DVD came out, there was a reason to spend some money because the home video market was exploding again. Um, but some of the lesser known B movies, I mean, I again, you know, and we're not a studio. We treat it like an independent um, company would. We're know we're not restoring gone with the wind or the wizard of oz um so when we take on a giant from the unknown there's a lot of affection for it and i feel that you have to kind of now elevate yourself to the collector's market to bring out the best quality and also um spend the money and spend the time to have that because once you spend that money you're you're preserving at least another version another iteration of that film for for later i mean everyone thought years ago if you had a digital beta copy of a movie you know that that's all you needed little did they know you know like what was coming down the road so it 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 it, it, the moral of the story is don't throw away your films keep keep them in in good health and take care of them because god knows what's going to come down the road you know when they do the hologram movie (laughs) and uh is there has there been anything the I guess the white whale that you haven't been able to find yet, something from a collector's point of view that is just out there that you're wanting to see. Is it, you know, I, I for a long time, it was the um, Wells Quixote footage. That was kind of yeah. one of those things that everybody. And that, and that turned up. So the question is, will, will what's left? Well, there's a chance somebody will find London after midnight someday. Mm. I mean, that's been the most evasive kind of film that has been, unavailable um it's it's funny too somebody actually did a youtube video with a um they did like a reimagined version of what it would look like if you found it and uh, and then turner did maybe about 10 years ago they did the stills and they put it together with the soundtrack and they did a nice recreation following the the, the script um so yeah that would be sort of like a dream you know if you found a, a print of london after midnight um, but we're finding films. I mean, so often now when the labs were closed, a lot of people went in and rummaged through what was left. So a good example of that was um, when Movie Lab closed years ago, mm-hmm. there was this sort of that, you know, kind of story that they dumped a lot of the films into the East River. And and that's just crazy. You think about that. And so collectors like uh, Mike Brainy from Something Weird Video. I mean, he, he saved a lot of those movies early on that were probably destined for the dumpster. And then you look at some of the other smaller studios, um, especially a lot of the allied artist films that are kind of just sort of tied into complicated legal situations where the rights issues are not clearly defined. And even now there's sort of like paperwork going back that you know, certain rights are owned by other people. So that's where it gets tricky is to really piece together kind of outside of the studio system when you're dealing with independent studios or smaller production companies, you know, the orphan film, 
versus the film that just has confusion in terms of the ownership of it. I'm dealing with that right now with um, some movies where we're just trying to piece together the proper ownership and track down people that might still be attached to the, the state of the people that own it previously. And is that something where it's just you somebody's staking a claim against it that might not actually be theirs or is it you're just trying to do this and you can't find who is that actually owns this thing at this point that's right so if, if someone made a film and they had registered it for copyright but they died and it was an individual that had the company that's now defunct tracking down family members or material on these films you know that's sort of a real challenge because you you want to be able to compensate them and you want to get permission but at the same time there might be 10 versions of it on youtube and it's just sort of being treated as an orphan picture so it gets it gets it gets complicated in that world and um another good example of it too is you know we're, we just recently started distributing wade williams movies which included giant from the unknown and for so many years his movies have been pirated by other mm -hmm. people and he's, he hasn't really enforced them the way he should. So we're now getting involved more from an administrative perspective to try to make sure, like, when we do put out the Edward Bob set, you know, there's not 20 guys streaming Bride of the Monster, or, you know, or Plan Night from Outer Space on YouTube. Because if you're going to spend that type of money, you want to at least try to make sure that those rights are being managed. And that's really the hard part with digital is that so often, a movie will end up on YouTube and then they'll pull it down and they'll put it back up a few days later. Right. And it's great, you know, for people who are just looking for consumption, but it's hard when you're dealing with trying to monetize a library, you got to really start policing it. That's how do you, I would imagine there's two different sides of your mind where there is the film collector, the cinephile side, and then there's this, the business side, which they, don't always line up with people where just because you're really love movies don't does not mean you know how to run a business and sometimes you're really good at running a business but you might not have good taste so you're especially when something that you're doing is so heavily curated um you're you, you're kind of an unusual person in that way because i think you've actually struck a balance there it, it, it's an unusual position to be in because there is the knee-jerk reaction of something that you might have a love affair with and then you don't necessarily know the, um, the rhyme or reasoning to getting it to the audience. And, and that's what's great about having a platform, though, because what we've been able to do is to editorialize films that are lesser known movies, especially a lot of the early poverty row films. Mm -hmm. We put out The Sin of Nora Moran, which is a great sort great of Great release, by the way. Beautiful. Thank you. And, and again, you know, it's a, it's a movie that people know because of its movie poster pedigree more than the actual film content. It's a good poster. Honestly. It's an amazing poster, but it doesn't reflect the movie whatsoever. No, no. <laughs> so you've got this sort of like early kind of noir-y type of film that is filmed in the most artful, creative way for a Poverty Row studio um, that is truncated in a tight, you know, short film with, a great storyline with Zita Johan, who was in The Mummy and yeah. looks great. She's captivating in the movie. So that to me was great because we were able to do it in conjunction with my friend and mentor, Sam Sherman, who knew Zita Johan. So we're able to take someone and tell a story and kind of not just that, but talk about the history of the movie and kind of like how it went in and out of um, distribution and back into syndication, when, when Sam got it in the 60s, he released it into a syndication package and retitled it, Voice from the Grave. <laughs> you know, it was brilliant because it allowed him to sell it. Yeah. It, and again, this is another- Much like the poster, had nothing to do with what it is it though. nothing to do with it, absolutely. And, uh, and he also had the original 35 millimeter film negative, um, which was restored and we were able to get that um, released with a lot of fanfare and um, Turner Classic Movies aired it. It was supposed to be at the TCM Festival last year, but because of COVID, um, that didn't happen. So that that sucked because we were really hoping to see it theatrically, which would have been awesome. Yeah. Um, that that that's one of the silver lining things for the restoration is um, 
seeing th seeing things on the big screen after we've done a cleanup. It's just, oh, I mean, it's it's great to have it, but if you're watching it on your phone or your computer, uh, it, it's not the same. Seeing it on a screen with a group of people and projected, you know, from 35 is there's nothing else like it. Oh, of course not. But you have to uh, keep in mind going back to those old, you know, third generation bootlegs getting at conventions. And we fell in love with films that we did not see in ideal situations or ideal presentations. Um, it was honestly rare for me to find a good presentation of any revival show in the 80s or 90s because uh, there was a lot of crappy projectionists out there who would just, they would have it cropped wrong. They would have the lighting wrong. There was tons of things that you could do. It was a bad print. Um, and so you were, it would, the theatrical experience was more about communal than it was about the actual quality of the print. But now it seems like when both those worlds finally started to come together, you know, the whole, the whole world blows up and theatrical experience is becoming very limited at best. Yeah. I'm looking forward to getting back into a dark theater without the glowing phone. <laughs> But in yeah. the meantime, I'm thankful that we have all these digital initiatives to They're keep great. us occupied and engaged and, and allow us to plot. I'm, I'm, I'm so thankful that we made an investment in transferring so much content so we were able to actually spend the past year planning stuff up, doing digital restorations and pushing it into our distribution. Um, but I, I still miss terribly the, the experience, the collective um, experience of going to the theater and going to a festival. Absolutely. And, but again, the idea the, of all these things that you can have access to, if you even have a passing interest in some more obscure titles that you could, you know, sign up for a trial of one of these platforms that do, you know, for, you know, if you looked at Fandor, I'm sure that the average 22 year old hasn't even heard of 90% of anything on there. But if you have even the slight bit of interest in learning about film history, you could really give yourself an education over the course of, you know, a couple months and long weekends, I think. You do. And that, and that, that was one of the big motivators for us. Um, we started talking um, to the company, the, the, the group that took over Fandor when they went under um, two years ago. Mm -hmm. And I was shopping it around along with a film detective trying to raise money to find a, you know, a home for it. And thankfully, Sundan um, shared our vision and kind of agreed that there was an audience for art film, for indie film, for older movies. And they really believe in kind of niche audience participation, as opposed to chasing kind of the next mainstream platform and trying to compete against NBC Peacock or Universal or uh, Hulu uh, or Netflix. It's just good luck. Disney Plus, how, how would you do that? How would you take, you know, that type of catalog? You, you won't. So the niche audience opportunity, and you're spot on with film discovery to get the education. Bandor was great because they had that great, um, editorial content with Keyframe. Mm -hmm. So you're able to take people through an education of cinema history or get into genre films, explain the origin of them with people who were authorities on those subjects. And that I, that's what I love that we're doing now is we're going to rebuild Keyframe and create an editorial community that then brings it to an audience of new cinephiles who might not know about, you know, poverty row films or pre-code films or you know kind of like the the b studios from hollywood that made all the great lugosi films that everyone loves to watch you know and build off of that along with curating from all over the, the world other studios um i get into hammer um where the old english stuff love it absolutely all the, all the yeah. old hammer stuff and even before the sort of technical um Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, there was all the crime and noir hammer movies you know, that came before that. And those no, don't get- I didn't know they did crime stuff before that. I've they only did. seen the horror stuff. Oh, yeah, exactly. So case in point. So, you know, there's this whole sort of like catalog of hammer that includes so much more than what you or I probably grew up watching because they weren't pushing those titles into, you know, creature double feature or- <laughs> you know or any of the shows that they were exploiting the horrors of dracula or you know taste the blood of dracula or any of the films that you know we watched so often but they're great movies and they're they're really going to fit nicely into a curated grouping of titles that we're going to be bringing back to market 
um, going deep into the international stuff, even the Toho Film Library, so much of that is underserved um, and not out there. And they're great movies. I mean, that's another great, amazing franchise. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah, the, there's more than just Godzilla and Gamera. In so there. much more. Yeah. So much more. I mean, they like Hammer, they produced other genres of film and great studio. But we know just sort of like the, the famous ones in our country. So I think Fandor being able to have a global kind of um, audience and also a global selection is going to be fun because this way we can get into curations of other countries, you know, like Egypt, for example. Egypt had an amazing film, you know, renaissance of early sort of glamorous Hollywood type films. Really? And oh, yeah. And not a lot of people know that Egypt no. had a great community of uh, filmmaking and um and it did and these are films that are seldom seen so i think that the films around the world kind of um curation along with partnerships and st strategic alliances what like we've done over the years with um like the british film institute and some of the other archives like library of congress you know we want to forge these alliances and build out kind of an editorial calendar of contributors so we can take that content, contextualize it, and not just have a static platform. Fandor was never that. It was always about discovery through editorial kind of um, guidance to the discovery. And is that something where you're gonna continue this? Because the merger of, I guess, all three of these companies now, is this gonna be all under one label or will these um, entities continue to have their own identity, I guess, at this point, will Fandor, Film Detective continue to be their own things, or will this just become one deal from here on? No, they're going to remain their own things. And okay, they're, cool. They're very different from each other, but yes. there's similarities. So we will pull titles from our archive to Fandor, but we will also be pulling from all over. I mean, Fandor is so much more. So we'll be looking for newer independent films, some um, back catalogs from some of the studios for some important films from directors that we want to celebrate and film detective is now you know finally able to go through we, we've got so much content and it's sitting in various archives that includes ucla the academy of motion pictures warner brothers the library of congress so we have our archives spread out into proper repositories where film is stored correctly um, and that was really important to me was to make sure that when we did this transaction that the film negatives and the film material would remain at the archives so you know 50 years from now there was still a protected film negative intact somewhere what we have access to is obviously make that material as a digital file and then distribute it into the pipeline for the various platforms that we use but the, the film library um, is just it's great to have it all under one roof so we can maintain it but to lose that sort of security of being in a proper location like UCLA, like the Academy, mm -hmm. that that wouldn't fly. Why would you want to take film negatives out of these great places <laughs> and put them into, you know, someone someone's back office? That's just going to be inferior. Makes, makes no sense. Now, when with the idea of this continuing to be um, educational, editorial in nature, when you're moving some of these titles over. Um, like just an example that comes to mind is with um, Giant from the Unknown, uh, that Tom Weaver audio commentary is one of the best audio commentaries I've heard probably Isn't in the last two years. Awesome. Fantastic. Did a great job on it. And it was one of those things that it was just made it, you could feel his passion for it through it. And I think when you can see somebody through something through somebody else's eyes and give it that kind of context, it really does open up the film. And I'm wondering if those are things that you would port over to Fandor, that you would keep that in the idea of sort of the film history um, element. Yeah, no, we're definitely planning to migrate all of our uh, featurettes and commentaries right. into the platforms. I think that's something that is not done often enough. You think of all those Blu-ray releases, they have those great featurettes and, and audio commentaries, but they don't usually reside on a digital platform. So I think that that's a really good sort of concept is commentary tracks that can exist and coexist on a streaming site along with the film. Absolutely. And you could even uh, 
the idea of, you know, we kind of were raised, I think, in watching some similar things and you have an intro to it that just pops up and you can either choose to watch it with the intro or not that gives a little bit of context so you get that greater story of where the what the film was like what society was like at that point of time who were the people that made it and just those quick little five minute things that really do i think add a whole nother layer to a film oh they, they really do i grew up um as a kid here in boston we had a show um called the movie loft and it was on you know pretty much from the mid seventies all the way up through the early nineties. And their whole thing was they were a superstation, um, channel uh, 38 here in Boston. And their host, who's actually our um, host on the film detective that does a lot of our intros and outros to the movies is this guy, Dana Hersey. And he would, this is, this is before AMC, this is before TCM. And this was regional too. And it totally could have gone national, but it was just a regional show. But loved by many and he came out and they had this sort of like cool movie set with a spiral staircase with some old film cans and he always had sort of like this funny you know like bill cosby type sweater on <laughs> and he would do the intro and he had this great bedside manner and he kind of like set the movie up and to me that was so important that that was almost as important or more important than the film itself because you decided whether or not it was something you're going to like move on and sort of watch something else or he was going to make it engaging enough to kind of like keep you on the channel. And cool. that part of the, 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 you know, that, in, that engagement is so lacking in streaming. No one's really doing that. And I think outside of TCM, I don't know of any network that does a real proper hosted kind of contextualized type environment the closest thing and I, I wouldn't even say it's that maybe joe bob briggs on shutter is probably yeah. the closest thing maybe Definitely. okay Definitely. and and that's you know just one Fanguli, you know, maybe. what's that it's fanguli mm, yeah <laughs> yeah and it's um that's that's reminds me of yeah that idea those things that we used to see on you know one o'clock in the afternoon on a, on a Saturday on one of those UHF channels, or the other thing that it really reminds me of now where I think the quality of those intros has gone up so much for, it reminds me of going to a film festival where you have somebody that's actually, you know, standing up in front and kind of giving the context and afterwards there might be some Q and a, that kind of thing. If you set it up like that, I think that that's just, it really does add so much to it. If you, it gives you insight that you wouldn't have otherwise. It really does. And I think that I, I love the Joe. I love that Joe Bob Briggs is actually back doing that. Yeah. Same. same fan of his. Um, and I, and I do think though, that we're going to do more things like that. And I think we'll be definitely doing some more kind of um, social events where we even have some activations when we debut a film, we might have the director on either if, if, if we're still in COVID, we can do it like we're doing now in a, a zoom environment. And that's the cool thing with the technology is that you're recording this right now. We could record a Q&A with the director, tape it, and stream that. Yep. So that's really, you know, the way we're doing these micro-channel um, deliveries with technology and all that. It's just, it's a game changer. And I think if you're willing to put the work in to do good editorial and spend a little more effort, you're going to introduce the audience better to the content. I think that programmers just get lazy and they all get the same, they all chase the same stuff. They're all going after sort of like the common well-known titles to get the ratings. And with streaming, you're not beholden like you are with a cable network to the Nielsen ratings. And, and, and so, you know, so you're able to go deeper and take more chances to a, a, a smaller audience, still substantial, but not the type of an audience you need to sustain a cable network. Well, I think that, you start, it's not unlike building up a record label or a good record store, I guess is probably a closer um, comparison to that way, where it's just, if you find people whose tr trust you taste, then you'll go along with them. You're willing, if you see a label that's putting something out that you've never heard of before, it looks like an interesting thumbnail. Okay, I'll give that a day in court. You're absolutely yep. right. No, I mean, that's a really good analogy. Being a vinyl junkie, uh, I completely agree with you. So if you look at, you know, like back in the day when Sub Pop was putting out, you know, records, you know, yeah. you knew that the brand, if you like, you know, Mud Honey or you like, you know, certain groups like the Melvins and things like that, you would like other stuff too. 
And I think it's a, a very good analogy. Even the independent record stores, um, if you look at, um, for us in Boston, we've got Newbury Comics. Mm -hmm. And that's a great um, independent, one of the few that have survived. And now that we've got kind of online, they're able to continue to make revenue doing that, but they still have physical locations because they have an audience that trusts the brand. So you're totally right about that. How long have they been around? Because I mean, I, I had a friend who went to Tufts and so I visited there and that, I mean, my God, it feels like they've been around for, it has years. to be 30, 40 years now, something yeah, like that. I think for going on 40 years, if not wow. already. That's, I mean, and that, that just goes to show that that's a place that was, you're turning over your population in Boston because it's such a heavy, you know, you do have a lot of locals there, but you have so much of a transient population with college kids coming through all the time, such a huge number of people that there's people with disposable income that are still looking for good records that, you know, they weren't being served by Sam Goody or, you know, the towers. But, when they went away. Yeah. So the, so the mall stores you know, wouldn't have the, the rare, you know, import seven inch from rough trade you know that you yeah yeah, yeah. like amoeba or um some of the you know more kind of tastemaker stores and then too if you you know you would go to the record store and if you heard something you'd be able to have some engagement with the person working there because chances are they were like you they liked a lot of the similar stuff versus if you went to the mall and they were playing like a top 40 song that you couldn't stand and you it, you, you wouldn't you wouldn't feel that kinship to it. So yeah, that's like, I think cinephiles and, and music lovers in terms of the the way that they engage, the the the, the process is very similar. I, I'm always surprised when one isn't accompanied by the other. You know, if you have a huge collection of films, I'm really always surprised if you don't have a lot of move uh, a lot of music as well. Um, it's just it's, it seems like something that goes hand in hand and. I will say one thing that I don't miss about the record store is when I went in and I would buy something at the indie record store that felt a little bit too mainstream that I was getting judged for it. Cause you know, you know, fuck you. Dinosaur junior is a good band. I, I don't need the, the, the eye. Oh, right it's now. so true. I, it's so true. Just the other day I went to Newbury comics and <laughs> I never had a vinyl copy of Nick Drake's pink moon. Oh, nice. I okay. had it on CD and you know, I'm, I'm an old guy now. And there was this like, <laughs> kid with a nose ring that was looking at me like yeah day late dollar short boomer and i not that he's not that he said that but it was you're, you're so right about that interaction and part of me was kind of like yeah like <laughs> i get what you're probably thinking but little do you know before you were born i was listening to this stuff so you know the judgment is definitely very and that's part but that's also the rite of passage too like where you get so to a point when you're in your 20s you you like to think your your music is precious to yourself and you've got that sort of closed mindedness to sort of get you to the point where you eventually embrace other stuff i watched the barry gibb documentary the other night and i was i was like the kid with a disco suck shirt and after that movie i completely had a whole kind of different perspective on my interpretation of disco music and mm -hmm. what was underneath a lot of the um the grievance with disco once i watched that documentary and if you haven't seen it it's it's amazing but the the takeaway on the film to me mostly was the backlash that the bgs got on the disco thing was so unwarranted because of how much they had done before that and that the disco was just another way of them to be creative. And they took that sound, the industry, the, the music industry, and they bastardized it to the point where it was like disco duck and all this goofy stuff. And the BGs got wrongfully grouped into sort of like this negative connotation with music. And um, it, it's, yeah, so it, it's tricky. You know, you get into sort of the snobbery of um, certain things, but listen, I am is much of a uh, supporter of your sort of your mainstream films, your mainstream music, yeah. as much as the other stuff. But I'm not in that world to go out and, you know, there, there are other people with far deeper pockets to work on those projects. I like to think that, you know, we can be the kind of like 
the little guy's helper to take the lesser known titles and bring them into the forefront. There's plenty, you know, Disney Plus and Hulu and um, HBO Max, they've got plenty of dough to go after all the other stuff. We'll work on the indie stuff and slip in some, you know, mainstream things that are lesser known today because maybe they've fallen out of fashion and people have just forgotten about them. Um, but it doesn't mean that they're not still worth putting back into circulation. Um, it's just so funny at people's tastes in the judgment around that in terms of programming, whether it's film or music. It's uh, it's a fascinating thing. Well, music is one of the only areas where the more you know about something, the wiser you get, the less your opinion matters. It's something that right as soon as you discover music, you know, if when you really kind of throw yourself headlong into it, which I assume for most people is kind of the preteen years, right up until you're in college, kind of in that range. Um, once you get past that, you're too old and your opinion is kind of worthless. And with most other arts, that's kind of when you first start to cut your teeth, you have all these big opinions and then everybody recognizes that you need to spend a little bit of time in the world and then you can come back to this and reanalyze all this work and look at it and you'll have probably more grounded, honest opinions as opposed to these things are just you know kind of sticking your finger up to your mom and dad or whatever the hell's bothering you at that point in your life. Yeah, and it's so funny to think too. Like we have, um, we have a punk rock movie in our library, and yeah, you think about that film, which was shot on eight millimeter in you know like a club environment with a handheld eight millimeter, but it's got some of the most iconic footage of the Sex Pistols, Johnny Thunders, you know, all these great groups. Um, it's some of the most important footage of them, but now you think that that's 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 even beyond the realm of like classic rock because this is 40 years ago so if you think mm -hmm. about 1980 40 years before that was like big band music oh it, it oh just, i hadn't uh, thought about that in that way <laughs> so, so i don't know in terms of like the stylings how how that changes or doesn't change and like you know green day was still pretty much the sex pistols um like all these groups that are still playing free chord rock and roll, they're still doing the Ramones 50 years later. Sure. So I don't, I don't, I don't think there's as big of a generational gap as there was like when my parents were telling me to like turn off the clash and the sex pistols that it was just noise. And, you know, why would you listen to such crap? But today, if, if you have kids, you know, they're probably listening to the same stuff you're listening to and not that dissimilar. Well, it depends on their age because the five-year-old, it's there's a beautiful thing where he loves anything. He doesn't care what it is. Um, like he literally, it's funny that you brought up the Bee Gees, Staying Alive. He requests that song almost on a daily basis. But then he also really, really likes uh, Laura Jane Grace's uh, new album from Against Me. Like So it's kind of all over the place. It's just all music is equal in his eyes. The 10 year old is getting a little bit more of the influence from friends and things that are cool and uncool and that and that's where you can see that come in and there's just such that that thing like a lot of things in life i think we have to kind of get back to that five-year-old state to actually appreciate appreciate things without judgment which is something that i think we should all strive for yeah no it's it's a really good point i think that the judgment of things going into it with kind of like a five-year-old mentality is um is great. I just started listening to uh, a lot of English uh, folk stuff that I didn't listen to, like Renaissance um, was a group that I never really uh, delved into deeply. And then you start getting into, you know, out of Renaissance, you had uh, like w Richard Thompson and all this sort of like great stuff. I'm amazed at how much stuff from 40 or 50 years ago that I never listened to that I'm now really excited about. And, and the same thing goes with, with film. I think that you can go back to genres of film that you might not have been necessarily as a 12 year old kid. You, you know, I was looking mostly for horror movies. Yeah. And now I have far more interest in you know, like pre-code movies or film noir films than I would have, you know, say 20 or 30 years ago. Um, doesn't mean I still don't love, you know, some great horror movie, you know, from the seventies. But I feel like that's being done so much now, like the, the grindhouse slasher movies is kind of being adopted by a younger generation. So it's kind mm -hmm. of like it's covered. Um, so it doesn't feel like that needs necessarily the most focus. Uh, where pre-code um, and even silence um, 
definitely need a little more love to get people to engage on. You've, you've somehow done it, man. Um, the best job I ever had in my life, and I've had a lot of them, was when I worked at a video store. And one of the things I loved about that was simply talking to people about movies and putting up my recommendations on the wall. You know, here's the five things that I think you should see, Chris's recommendations, that kind of thing. And you've somehow turned that into an actual career. So congratulations on that, man, because that Thank just you. sounds what, what, amazing. What would, be your, what would be your five this week if you were still in the video store? Oh my God. If I, that, see, that's such a loaded thing. It would it always is. be. It is. Um, because it would be essentially there would be some new release that I felt like not enough people were paying attention to. Um, so if there, there's one that, um, oh God, what is the name of this movie now? It's um, Go, Don't Go would probably be mm -hmm. the number one right now. Are you familiar with that film? I am. Yeah. Gravitas released it. It's a great yeah. movie. One of the best movies I've seen in years to me. Um, so I would kind of put that in there, but then I would also put in something that would be really kind of everybody has seen that they like, just so they might actually pick up the one that I had mentioned. But right now offhand, I think that's the one I would say. What about, what about you? What would be uh, something that you would recommend? That's I, I would, well, a film that I'm trying to get my hands on right now, I'm in, I'm in discussions with the, uh, the film's director who's based in Australia. Are you familiar with the movie Desperate Man Blues? No, no, I'm not familiar with it. So there's this record collector who I'm a huge fan of by the name of Joe Passard. And he's okay. in um, he's he's out in Maryland, in like rural Maryland. And this filmmaker from Australia um, made this wonderful documentary, came out about maybe 13, 14 years ago called Desperate Man Blues. And Wait a it's minute. about his record collection, which is mostly vinyl, like not vinyl, but yes. Shellac 78s from the yeah, 20s. Okay, I have seen this. Yes, I have seen this. Okay. It's phenomenal because yes. it's a total slice of life where this guy, he, he wants nothing to do with contemporary music. He loves what, you know, was referred to as hot jazz, mm -hmm. hillbilly music, but his record collection is the most incredible, most valuable collection on the planet of 78 records from from those categories and he's still around so i went to they had a record release party um one of the guys who runs the um reissue labeled um dust to digital mm -hmm. uh, put together a like a, a record release party for him and he got this small record store in baltimore to host it and joe came in and just talked to like you know 50 people mostly 20 some about collecting records and why like contemporary music was so awful and why you know you needed to discover a lot of this early jazz and hot jazz music but his enthusiasm is so contagious because he is the fanboy and he's got this sort of like amazing downstairs in his house where people come and interview him and film him and he had been doing a weekly radio show forever and he even started his own um, record label when he was very young in the 50s called phonotone records and his life story is just a guy who's a collector who was obsessed and somehow this was his thing. And the film is phenomenal. So that that is definitely one that I'm not just trying to get the rights to, but I'm also a huge fan of. Well, and he had all that like crazy regional specific music of artists that never made it outside of like, you know, a three city area and all this like insanely specific stuff from what I remember of it, that it's just, I don't even know how you crack the nut of a collection like that of how you start and end on that because their enthusiasm for something like that can be infectious but then when i divorce myself from that reality of their attitude it's like it might not work for me but i do appreciate people um that have that energy for something even though it might not translate over to my direct appreciate appreciation of it i love seeing people that are like that and listening to people are like that are into things anything anybody that has passion i, I want to hear them talk about it yeah and you're right because early on in the call you talked about how like synonymous you know film collecting and music collecting are so much part of the same world if you look at any great film collector that had a you know whether it's wade williams or um kit parker or any of the you know many people over the years that had the bug some who were able to make a living at it, others who just amassed huge collections and then they passed away and a truck came and took it away. And it's sort of like a lot of those people were the reason why these films exist at all today. And the same is true with the music. 
is that like in Joe's case, he supplied countless companies with tracks for like movies or reissues and all that because he was the only one that had the collection in such a deep dive in terms of those, as you mentioned, regional releases that were not common. You know, it wasn't mm -hmm. like he was sitting there with like the Caruso RCA Victor 78 that everyone's grandmother had in, in the basement. He had really rare like Black Patty, you know, and all these sort of very rare labels that are worth hundreds, if not thousands per record. Yeah. And just to kind of bring it back to what you're doing, you're doing that in your own way now, but it's in re-releasing it in a way that's digestible for people, putting it in the, the sort of the path of least resistance now with having a streaming platform. So that has to be pretty exciting to be curating that and going through that and making these selections now. Um, what's the, if, if somebody was to sign up for a trial of yours, what are the kind of two or three titles that you would recommend something they can see on Fandor they can't see other places that um, might hook them in? Well, I would say that for Fandor, what is a great entry point is Keyframe and the editorial content that gets produced because that takes genres of films and categories and gives you history, kind of draws you in. So you might take a chance on a Japanese samurai film or you might take a chance on a lesser known indie title. Uh, or a, a pre-code Hollywood film. Um, and Fandor always spent a lot of time sort of being really um, smart about the way they produced all this original content to build that audience. In terms of um, the categories, it has a grouping that if you're a cinephile, you, you're going to appreciate almost like you would with a left of the dial radio station. Mm. So let's put Fandor into like, a left of the dial where you're going to hear like different shows. You might have a jazz show during the day. You might have like a punk rock show at night, but they're all kind of part of, part of the sort of ecosystem of celebrating categories and genres opposed to just sort of the top 40, which you'll find the right side of the dial. That's sort of the, that's the analogy that you kind of brought me to in this conversation. It's, it's like a, it's a good music analogy because I'm yeah. so heavily into that as well. But Fandor is definitely left of the dial, more festival-oriented, more sort of art house, more kind of indie, more classic, and more global-centric than, say, Netflix or, say, NBC Peacock, which you're going to get all the mainstream stuff that, you know, you're not going to find on the other side. Well, and it's like, it's, you're doing, so Criterion does a great thing with kind of these titles that are pretty much nobody disputes why they're there. Um, I think what you're doing is making an argument for films that might not be given that kind of elevation. And I think that's really important. And that's something that, you know, that, that they, it's akin to that, but something that I think is a little bit off from that, even further left of the tile than what Criterion's doing. But different too. I mean, Criterion, I think is incredible for what they do in the presentation. Yeah. And, you know, it, that's the Cadillac. I mean, the Criterion Collection is essentially the Cadillac. I think that, you know, we're kind of the Volkswagen <laughs> with a lot of oomph behind it. You know what? I, I, love, I love a Volkswagen, though, honestly. So do I. So, <laughs> Got one right out there. I, I would almost, uh, I would feel a little bit um, less comfortable in the Cadillac, honestly. It, it feels like it's too much show for my personal taste. Well, you'll have a comfortable ride with us. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Dude, uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to do this. My pleasure. This has, been, this has oh, been fun. This has been great. So honestly. stay in touch and feel free to contribute to a keyframe. I will. Yes, absolutely. So thank you. I appreciate that. Well, it's good talking to you and um, we'll, we'll speak to you soon. Absolutely. All right. Cheers. Take care. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Uh, Time enough to figure you out Time enough to write this down Wish me luck, give me hope
always crack.